Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, Angola's President Jao Lorenzo faces a triple threat, COVID-19, low oil prices, and the legacy of corruption. How well is he navigating these challenges? And Nigeria's ruling party is at war with itself. Is this business as usual or a sign of more turbulence to come? Plus, we discuss corruption during the COVID-19 pandemic. Why and how are some individuals stealing from essential COVID-19 assistance? And what can we do about it? So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. President Jao Lorenzo is tackling three related challenges, COVID-19, low oil prices, and the legacy of corruption in his country. Billionaire Isabel Dos Santos is accused of stealing hundreds of millions in public funds while heading the state-run oil company in Angola. How can Lorenzo chart a path forward in the face of these obstacles? Joining me today to discuss Angola and other issues are Patrick Smith, editor-in-chief of the Africa Port and editor of Africa Confidential, Oni Og, the founder and executive director of Step Up Nigeria, and Matthew Page, an associate fellow at Chatham House, non-resident fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and a non-resident fellow at CDD West Africa. He's also the author of Nigeria, What Everyone Needs to Know. Okay, Patrick, Africa Report published a five-part series on the topic, Angola on the Trail of Stolen Billions. Can you start us off with what you and your colleague Zoe Einstein uncovered about how much Lorenzo's predecessor, Jose Eduardo Dos Santos, his family and cronies stole, and what is the government's campaign to find those missing billions? Thanks, Judd. We started off with the idea of trying to quantify the missing billions. So we looked at the period between 2002 and 2017. That's essentially the end of the civil war, where the killing of Savimbi, leader of UNITA. And then in 2017, when uh, Dos retired from government. And we spoke to a range of economists, business people, politicians, officials and the like and came up with the figure of around five to six hundred billion dollars generated in that period from oil, gas and mineral exports by the country. And out of that figure, the average we were given was a minimum of a hundred billion dollars had left the country through the the mechanism described by the Economic Commission for Africa in Addis as uh, illicit financial flows. And that can be all sorts of things. A lot of it was through procurement, so over-invoicing procurement. Some of it was uh, crooked third-party deals and oil and gas sales. Some of it was a lot more imaginative, and we can get into it later, but just to give you an idea... The state oil company, Sonangol in Angola, often described as a state within a state, would then lend money to local entrepreneurs to then invest in uh, either properties within Angola or often properties in Europe as a means to build up their financial portfolio. And many of those companies were linked to the, the ruling Doshantosh clan, in particular Isabel Doshantosh. So she ended up 
with massive shareholdings in some of the biggest Portuguese companies. If you add all that together, you get a factor of between 10 to 20% of the country's earnings in that period uh, left the country never to return. Gosh, that it's, it's shocking and, and such a terrible waste and, and really puts Lorenzo in a really tough spot as we enter into both low oil prices and the COVID-19 pandemic. And our senior associate, uh, Emily Colombo, she was on recently just to talk about Mozambique. She published a Critical Questions article for us on Angola's management of COVID-19. And her view was that the government gets good marks for a swift response, but she did raise a lot of issues about the enforcement of the state of the emergency and underscores, I think, as you have think about it as well, Patrick, that there is a very weak economy, which makes the recovery from COVID really, really challenging. And I love the way that you said this in your reporting. You said perhaps Angola would have weathered the storm better had over $100 billion not been stolen from state coffers. So I guess I have two questions for you. One, you know, do you agree with Emily? She loves disagreement, so don't worry about hurting her feelings. And then two, what is your take on Angola's response and how can the international community help here, both in terms of the repatriation of the stolen funds, but of course, combating the pandemic? I would probably take issue with Angola as uh, mismanaging the response. The Lorenzo government uh, inherited a really dysfunctional health service, so they had very little to work with. And I think, as Emily said in her discussions with you, the elite tended to go overseas whenever they needed medical treatment. So even the private facilities in Angola are pretty lackluster. So didn't have much to work with. Now, in terms of the enforcement of the lockdown, they've sort of darted around from over-enforcement to under-enforcement and too rigorous restrictions to not rigorous enough. But I have to say that if you rank them alongside, say, Nigeria or South Africa or Kenya, where there have been quite a few cases of people being shot in the street by overzealous security forces, that has happened in Angola. I'm not certain the exact number, but it's not been as bad as it has in other states. I think the biggest problem that government officials talk about when they talk about the pandemic is really the, the economic effects of that. And the, the worry, particularly for Angola, the crash in the oil price. So when oil prices started going minus in terms of the futures markets, that is terrible news for Angola. Because the other, the other factor we should probably talk about is the debt. The debt to GDP is 130% debt compared to, to the GDP. So they've got one of the highest debt to GDP ratios in the world at a time when their primary exports, oil and gas, are really flatlining, having crashed in, in the international markets. And like so many other countries on the continent, there's not a lot of sympathy for these countries outside perhaps the IMF and the, the World Bank at the moment. I mean, I guess the question is, is there something that is palatable and that would be impactful that the international community can do to, to assist Angola right now? In the short term, I think some tailored uh, interventions on the public health should be shared with places like Angola as a matter of urgency. So I think in terms of the, the technical and scientific knowledge, that's got to be a priority. And naturally, if we get to the stage of a vaccine that actually works, the use of that's got to be prioritised. But in terms of the caseload, I mean, Ang Angola so far is way behind South Africa and way behind those countries at the north of Africa, such as Egypt or Algeria. So um, I, I think primarily the big worry of the government is how to manage the chronic debt situation. 
They're already talking to China, fairly opaque talks, but they're having talks with China about how to to restructure the the debt owed to China and also Angola's debt on the bond markets. So I think they're they're looking for some expressions of support. They've had a bit of that from the IMF because they have they have this three year IMF program. The young finance minister Vera Davis is uh, quite well regarded on the international scene. But until the oil market picks up, the revenues just don't really uh, justify the sort of plans they have to restructure the social services and the things they want to sell off in a privatization program. No one wants to buy because no one wants to buy a state oil company like Solangol, which uh, hasn't been making much money in uh, recent years. Thanks, Patrick. That's a great deep dive and thoughtful sort of analysis of Angola's situation. Let's move to Nigeria. And listeners know that if it was up to me, sometimes I think the podcast would just be about Nigeria. And I really do hold back. But with Oni and Matt here, well, we're going to have to geek out a little bit about Nigeria. And Matt and I go way back. And it is the topic of conversation at every dinner table that Matt and I are at to our wife's displeasure. But Matt, I really want to talk about what's happening with Buhari's party, the ruling APC. And it looks like, I mean, it looks like the party's imploding. This is the ruling party of the Federal Republic of Nigeria with the president in control of the National Assembly with more governors than any other political party. The situation should not, must not be allowed to degenerate further than it has. The party's national chairman, Adams Oshimole, was suspended by a court order in mid-June. Now the party's been scrambling to name a replacement. I mean, they named as many as four in one day. Meanwhile, the governor of Edo State, which is the same state that Adams is from, Godwin Obaseki, has now defected to the opposition ahead of the gubernatorial elections. Like, what is happening? What's your take? That's a that's a great question. It is it is difficult. Things do seem to be changing by the day, and and it does look like the ruling party is imploding. But I think, based on past precedent, I think we're just observing the opening acts of a political drama. That, that really has a few more twists and turns to take before Nigeria's 2023 presidential election. Judd, as you know, sort of the politicking for the next presidential election basically begins as soon as one is over and the party structures begin realigning and orientating themselves towards the next big contest. So as you mentioned, elements within the ruling All Progressives Congress, so that's President Buhari's party, has really they've really united to outfox one of the most powerful political godfathers in the party, and that's former Lagos governor Bola Tinubu. And they did that by ousting his choice for party chairman, and that's the former Edo state governor you mentioned, Adams Oshiamole. And Buhari himself seems to have backed the move as of today. And I think what that will do is, is really deepen party divisions as we go ahead. You'll remember that when it sort of formed in 2013 and won the election in 2015, the APC was really started out as a fragile electoral coalition that united voters in large parts of the North and much of the Southwest. Buhari's acquiescence to Oshimole's ouster will likely alienate the power brokers that Buhari relied on, really, in his last two election victories. And those are the ones that were in the country's populous and prosperous Southwest, the ones that had close connections to people like Tanubu and Oshimole. And that could really weaken the APC as it gears up to the next election. 
Onyi, maybe I'll, I'll turn to you and get your take on it. I mean, the president took an extraordinary amount of time to weigh in on the APC's problems. It's almost really par for the course for him. But as Matt mentioned, so he finally had an executive committee meeting. He said the party was going to, at risk of collapsing, dismiss some of the lower level party members of the APC. But I wonder if you have a thought on what does Buhari's sort of late response to this and then all of a sudden a much sort of aggressive action? Like, what does that tell us about his control of the party? And it's particularly interesting because his chief confidant and chief of staff, Abi Kiari, had passed away. And I think that Kiari helped him right the ship a little bit. What's your take on all of this and what it's telling us about Nigerian politics? What we're seeing is the regular politicking of getting ready for 2023, as Matt has said. And to be honest, I'm sorry to disappoint you, Jude, but I'm really not interested in party politics because it's all like internal party wrangling. I personally, and also on behalf of Step Up Nigeria, I think our focus really is because, you know, we are frustrated with all this politics. How can we get society as a whole to focus on some of the key issues such as corruption to begin to change the way governance is, happens in Nigeria? I think that's perfectly fair. And I think many Nigerians agree with you that the politicking is a distraction from the real challenges of governance and getting the economy working and addressing with security. And maybe, Matt, just to wrap up here, to sort of marry what Onyi said and you said and, and my responses is, what are the implications of this politicking? I mean, 2023 is a long way away. And does this pose a short break in governance or are we going to see this continue to reverberate all the way to the election? Yeah, that's the big question, isn't it? And I think to sort of pick up on some of Oni's sort of rightful cynicism, which I think a lot of Nigerians share, when you teed up this discussion, you you mentioned the sort of the cross-carpeting, the camping where politicians basically switch parties, switch their colors at the drop of a hat. I think that's really emblematic of the Nigerian political class, right, and its failure to govern and failure to tackle big issues. Nigerian political parties, Judd, as you know, are not ideological and they don't really have coherent policy platforms. They are kind of these shifting constellations of just sort of power-hungry national, state, and local elites. There's not a lot that differentiates them in terms of how they function or the type of policies that they pursue and in terms of their long-term outlook. And you and I earlier today were talking about a really great example, which you highlighted in the introduction, which is in Edo State, you know, where you have an upcoming governorship election. It's an off-cycle election, which means it's often viewed as sort of a litmus test or a marker, you know, almost like a U.S. midterm election, right, where it, it tends to point to maybe where the political wind is blowing. But right now in Edo State, the sort of the weather vane is spinning around and around because the candidate who's the incumbent, who until recently belonged to the ruling party, recently defected, as you mentioned, to the opposition. His opponent, who he had ran against in 2016, the last election, who was the opposition candidate then, has actually defected to the ruling party and is the ruling party's candidate. So you have this almost sort of comical or farcical realignment where the political elite sort of, in just in a desperate bid to sort of gain power, have switched places. So given that that's sort of the options that voters in Edo or or Nigerians in general face, 
there isn't much to, for them to, to be hopeful about in terms of electoral politics. And I think that this whole episode and why you know, Oni was fairly doubtful, right, that Nigerian politicians can really rise to this occasion, really illustrates just how self-centered and out of touch a lot of Nigerian political elites have become. So you have worsening poverty in Nigeria, spiraling population growth, a spreading pandemic, which we don't really know how it's going to shake out in Nigeria. And then more importantly, uh, and something I wrote about for Chatham House, a looming economic recession or even depression that will hit Nigeria and is hitting Nigeria. And amidst all of these challenges, rather than sort of coming up with solutions, the country's politicians are basically, you know, fighting among themselves for what's left of the, the government structures in the country. The good news is I think both of you have really teed up our final conversation and including the earlier segment on Angola. So we're going to talk a little bit about corruption during COVID-19. And there's been an outpouring of funds and supplies into the regions. And unfortunately, that's more opportunities for graft. And Transparency International recently warned that corruption often thrives during times of crisis, particularly when institutions and oversight are weak and the public trust is low. So Onyi, this is your chance to tell us about how Step Up Nigeria has really been on the ball on this subject. I mean, I have been really impressed with the content that you've pushed out, both written, but also a great podcast series called COVID-19 and Corruption. Can you talk a little bit about your concerns about what COVID-19 means in Nigeria with respect to corruption? One of the concerns we had in Step Up Nigeria was the fact that corruption was already a huge issue before COVID-19. And one of the, and our concern was the fact that the corruption that already existed in Nigeria was going to also affect, you know, the management and effective response to the outbreak. And I will go with a common issue where, you know, which everyone talks about when it comes to COVID-19 and corruption risk. This is procurement fraud. And procurement fraud is something that even before COVID-19 in Nigeria has been a big issue. We Step Up Nigeria has been simplifying the audit reports, you know, the last two re- audit reports um, to make it, you know, um, citizen friendly. And in the 2017 audit report, it shows, first of all, that many government agencies do not follow procurement rules. And about 27.8 billion naira has been wasted on projects that don't follow procurement rules. We've seen the audit reports showing contractors being paid without, you know, work being done or uncompleted projects leading to lots of abandoned projects. And the health sector is one of those areas where the impact of procurement fraud has been seen. One example I usually give, and I've given this in several podcasts, is around the monies, about 27 million, I think it was in Jigawa State, was allocated to construct a health facility. And when the auditors got there, they realized that that facility has been converted to a king's palace. COVID-19 has just made things worse, you know, in the sense that everybody is going to hide under the umbrella of emergency procurement. And, and of course, we're going to see more contracts and awards given to friends and cronies of government to either build quarantine centers or whatever it is of medical supplies and kits. This is why we kind of launched a campaign using our podcast to actually, one, begin to also tell the stories around the real cost of corruption in the procurement sector, in other sectors, and how it affects and how it will affect the government's response to COVID-19. 
And then the, apart from government, there's also the society part of things as well. We were worried at the fact that the lack of integrity among society, people prior to COVID-19, there's also that general lack of integrity to follow rules or pay bribes to get things done or break rules. So we've seen cases where people had to pay bribes to break the quarantine rules, which has led to the spread of these diseases in states. So our concern was really to ensure that one, you know, corruption does not make the COVID-19 outbreak so uncontrollable in Nigeria. And that's, you know, to highlight the risk of the past, the fact that government has not been doing enough, you know, in the corruption space to ensure that we are prepared for situations that we're seeing now under COVID-19. Well, and this is not a problem unique to Nigeria. Just like looking over the rest of the region in Uganda, the government arrested four top officials following reports they inflated COVID-19 relief food prices. Zimbabwe, the health minister, has been accused of procuring COVID-19 test kits and medical equipment worth $60 million. Kenya, there's a Senate investigation now questioning the health ministry expenditures. And then just Days before we recorded this, the Zambian health minister was fired for, quote unquote, suspected graft. Patrick, what are your concerns about corruption in the time of COVID-19? And maybe you could take Oni's great comments and give us a bigger picture. Yeah, it's the thing that focuses people. So, you know, when it comes to ripping off healthcare budgets, everyone can relate to that. You know, that is putting lives in jeopardy directly. So it's become a major moral issue. And um, we earlier talked, Judd, about this uh, friend of mine in Zimbabwe who was kind of slightly incredulous. He said, this scandal in Zimbabwe, it involves the health minister who has been arraigned before court. He managed to pay bail by bringing um, a million Zimbabwe dollars, <laughs> presumably in a truck, to the court to get his bail. He's been dragged into it. And his business partner who is also the business partner of one of the sons of the president has been dragged into it. And people are outraged all of a sudden. But my friend in Zimbabwe was saying, you know, there's a company called Secunda that's involved in command agriculture, has monopoly over fuel supplies and was accused by the Public Accounts Committee of over invoicing to the tune of three billion dollars over a three year period. But those scams are so complicated and so difficult to unravel that people are focusing on a 60 million scandal. So I think there's a couple of things that come out of that is one that some of the organized criminals around the world are using the pandemic as a great distraction from what they're getting up to. So people are fixated on health spending or whatever. Meanwhile, they're looting other elements of governments and financial systems. The other one is, as Oni said, uh, it's just the, the failure of government institutions to really crack down on that, using the pandemic as some sort of reason why the normal mechanisms of accountability, courts and police and everything are not functioning. So a lot of stuff is going on unnoticed and unmonitored. And it's great that Step Up Nigeria is doing this. Um, it's a shame it's not happening in more countries. And you've got uh, just one last example, I'd, I'd say would be, uh, what's going on in uh, in South Africa with the general anti-corruption campaign, which essentially the pandemic has brought to a halt. So I fear that that, that is going to create a major backlog of uh, financial malfeasance that uh, the, I hesitate to say post-pandemic uh, uh, governments and regimes are going to deal with. And it's going to be very, very difficult. But I think we're going to see a great upsurge of this type of corruption and abuse of the financial system. 
Yeah, it seems to me that there's three really big implications. First of all, as you and Oni have mentioned, the ability to respond to people's health, you know, the, the dire situation that the pandemic poses is being compromised. Second, these countries are entering recession for the first time in 25 years and stealing from government coffers at a time when they're at a, a very low level is just affecting the lives of millions of people by, by you know, stealing when there's very limited money. And then, of course, how does it look on the government's legitimacy and what kind of unrest can it sort of fuel amongst a population that is already hurting from the medical, the health, the, the financial implications? So with our last couple of minutes, I want to pivot to sort of what do we do about it? And, and Matt's done some really interesting work on uh, both the taxonomy of corruption, this was a Carnegie paper, and then how elites stash their ill-gotten goods, particularly in Dubai. And so, Matt, I guess two questions here. One, you know, does this fit these patterns, both of corruption and then how money is moved out? And then particularly, what should we be doing about it? And then I'll come to Onyi for, for her thoughts as well. As you mentioned, as Sonia and Patrick, we're talking through some of those really great, I think, granular examples of COVID-related corruption. I mean, I'm thinking, yeah, how does this fit into sort of how I have tried to conceptualize corruption in Nigeria? Because it's incredibly complex. It often gets oversimplified. And COVID is sort of fitting, as Oni alluded to, into a, a pre-existing framework, right? So all this new money that is being spent on an emergency basis on, on COVID aspects and sort of also the economic fallout from the pandemic is sort of lubricating or flowing into these pre-existing conduits. So the holes in the system, the loopholes with which public officials have siphoned money out of the health sector or out of the empowerment, small business aid and assistance, for example, already existed. We know that, you know, in Nigeria, any self-respecting sort of politician has essentially a portfolio of briefcase companies that they and their family members maintain in order to capture contracts, you know, in these types of emergency situations. So in terms of the taxonomy, right, the framework with which we think about corruption in Nigeria, I think COVID-related corruption doesn't really neatly fit into one particular category. So it manifests itself in many different ways across many different sectors. So in the Nigerian context, and I'm sure this is true in many other African countries as well, is emergency spending, like security spending, is really exempt from those public procurement rules that Oni was mentioning earlier. So whether it be the humanitarian crisis in northeastern Nigeria natural disasters like seasonal flooding or the Boko Haram, other communal conflicts in Nigeria. These have been used by public officials as a pretext to spend money with no public scrutiny and, and to basically bypass procurement laws. And by designating these expenditures, which they have very light, wide leeway to do, as emergency or security related, they essentially escape this type of, of basic scrutiny. Uh, as Onyi will attest, even at the best of times, public expenditure is not easy to scrutinize, but it is virtually impossible to do so when it's spent in this sort of emergency way. And Judd, as you mentioned, you know, Nigeria is not unique in this respect, right? You look at the US, UK, other countries around the world that are making these emergency expenditures with minimal sort of oversight and bureaucratic safeguards for getting that money out the door to be helpful as much as possible. But I think in other countries, unlike in Nigeria, there is a sense that even in, if it is in retrospect, 
those expenditures w- will sort of be scrutinized and politicians and officials will be held accountable either legally or politically for how they were spent. But in Nigeria, that just isn't the case. And so to sort of pivot now to your, your final question, right, which is how do we you know, make the situation better? I mean, I think that the ball is really in the Buhari administration's court because despite its anti-corruption rhetoric, it's really resisted efforts to make the Nigerian government more accountable, more transparent, to reform public institutions in a really meaningful and durable way that will outlast their tenure in office. And so that is really the solution, right? So solving COVID-19-related corruption is impossible if those problems and those weaknesses, right, were pre-existing. The COVID-19 corruption is, is symptomatic of deeper ills, which I think, as Patrick noted, perhaps maybe this will give us greater impetus towards addressing those deeper ills, because now it's very real and meaningful to people in a very tangible way, which is, you know, in the context of the ongoing pandemic. I think that's exactly right. First of all, the irony of ironies is that Buhari has always portrayed himself as an anti-corruption fighter, and yet corruption continues under his tenure and lots of reasons to be worried about it currently under COVID. And secondly, this should be the moment. I mean, I think that those of us who work on these issues should both work very hard and and collaboratively to address the sort of the near-term and long-term negative effects of COVID, but should also be imaginative about how do we use this crisis to mobilize and reform around some of these more endemic, systemic issues. Oni, let me give you the last word because your organization does a lot, I think, when it comes to thinking about the culture of transparency, checking corruption. And I, I'd love if we could just have a brief summary of the, the, the things that you've been doing about storytelling, which I think are really remarkably important. Storytelling really has a very strong potential to change attitudes and behaviors when it comes to corruption. And initially, I thought it probably was more powerful with children, but I will just quickly tell a story to show that storytelling can also have an impact on adults as well. We just released a very short animated film, A Maker's Money, based on one of the books I I wrote for kids on anti-corruption. And one of the voice artists for that movie said while they were shooting the movie, um, they had to go to the National Identity Management um, Office to collect his card. And in the process, as usual, of course, he was asked to pay 5,000 naira. And he said he was about paying that. Then he remembered he was playing the role of someone in the movie who was, you know, trying to... Um, and because Money talks about... Um, it's a movie about corruption for kids, you know, that talks about um, different types of corruption, you know, giving family and friends jobs, you know, paying bribes. And um, and um, and non-merit based recruitment. So I think going through that story, he said, kind of transformed him, and he was quite reluctant to pay that bribe, and he refused to pay the bribe, which before being in that movie he wouldn't have. And so we tend to use storytelling to bring the impact of corruption closer home, because we think that many Nigerians, I think every Nigerian is a corruption expert. I keep on saying everybody can talk about corruption, you know, and and how it is bad and how it happens. But I think not enough has been said around how it really affects everyone. You know, how do, what does really, what's the real cost of corruption to me? And I think that's what we're trying to do in, in Step Up Nigeria, to use storytelling to one, challenge some of the social norms, some of those behaviors, those practices 
that actually drive corruption in the first place. And then secondly, to be, for people to begin to really think through some of the real costs of corruption in society. I love that. Onya, we're going to put a link to that animated series on the show notes so people can see it. And let me just thank all of our guests for joining us today. And we will see everyone in two weeks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org slash Africa. Thanks. Thanks.